That's right. That's right. Yeah, what was that about? I forgot now. Yeah. I forgot what the prayer list said. Yeah, okay. Goes in tomorrow. Who's that? Yeah. Well, I called Emily, you know, a few days ago, and she said it was okay. So he's, I think he's okay to text and everything now. Yeah, you could text him. Yeah, he's, I think he's up to everything now. Uh, so. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We ready? What's that? Oh, are you? Okay. <laughs> All right. Welcome, everyone. Glad you could brave the cold tonight. Boy, that wind is cold out there, isn't it? Oh. It was nice it's, out at 530. Yeah, but it's not now. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you uh, for your goodness and grace to us this day and throughout our lives as we think back and how we have uh, seen your good providence in our lives. We pray for uh, our good friend, uh, brother Ken Rapp, and his recovery from this surgery. We pray that uh, he'll be able to have a complete recovery and be restored to health. Thank you for him and Emily and their service to our church over the years. So we ask your blessing upon us tonight as we continue in the book of 1 Corinthians. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at uh, this problem. I called it Christian liberty. That is, some in the church, believe it or not, it may sound rather <laughs> odd to us, uh, were arguing, men were arguing for the right to go to prostitutes still. And I mentioned last week that this was a commonly accepted practice in their culture. Sexual immorality was, it's becoming a common accepted practice in our culture. <laughs> when I grew up in the 1950s, it wasn't accepted. You know, it wasn't accept. not that everybody wanted to do it. Everybody's, human nature hasn't changed, but it wasn't accepted generally. It was frowned upon, looked down upon. You know, even in the movies of those days, people, they had people doing it, but it was frowned upon in the movies even. But now not, it's, it's something that people should do. And so that, we get a little taste of that here, that this is the way the, the culture worked. And men, uh, there, was, there was no, uh, no moral problem in that society, but obviously it is for a Christian. So Paul... Paul has to deal with this quite a bit. There's a lot in Paul's epistles about sexual immorality because it was so normal in the Roman world. And they were arguing for this based upon kind of a Christian liberty. Uh, verse 12, I have the right to do anything. That seems to be a quote from the Corinthians themselves. Paul says, 
not everything is beneficial, and they say I have the right to do anything, but he says I will not be mastered by anything. Um, so, um, you know, Paul could have just said, when they say I have the right to do anything, I mean, he, he's looking at it more broadly. I mean, he could just say, well, he'll, he'll, he'll say, he says in his epistles, flee sexual immorality, but here, looking at it broadly in the case of this is a question of, you know, even if I have the right to do something, which they don't have the right to do this, but even if you said, well, I've got the right to do this, uh, not everything is beneficial. Just because we may have the right to do it doesn't mean we necessarily should as Christians. And we don't want to be mastered by anything, or that is uh, exactly that. That is, it, it dominates us, it controls us, rather than we control the thing we do. We can all be mastered by things. Uh, you know, we can be mastered by our devotion to sports or this or hockey. You know, you know, you can be mastered by all kinds of things. You know, we can we can all have our things we love, and they take precedence. You know, and so so Paul deals with that. He's dealing with that uh, idea that when I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Um, in, as he begins this chapter in verse 12 through 14. Um, and then he starts talking about the sacredness of the human body in verses 15 through 20. He's getting to the issue at hand. And he said, I, you shouldn't I'm not going to take the body of a Christian and unite that to a prostitute. And uh, he says the, the sexual relationship is a special kind of sin in a sense that, uh, you know, it's a one flesh, you know, it's, it's a one flesh relationship in the sense there's more to sexual uh, relationship than just the physical aspect of it, uh, Paul says. There's more to that. Now, it's not marriage. Sexual immorality is not marriage. A marriage is a covenant when two people determine to live together in, in matrimony and so forth. Uh, it's, not a, it's, not, it's not a marriage relationship, but there is something about it that's more, that's different than other kinds of uh, unions. And that's where we really get into it in verse 18. And we come up against a very difficult verse here to interpret. Um, and I didn't put all this in your notes, maybe I should have, but we'll look at it. He says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. So he gets right down to it. Now he's getting to the issue at hand. Just flee from sexual immorality. And then he says this thing. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now I'm going to start out here. What? All the, all the venereal diseases. <laughs> Well, let's I'll, wait a minute, and we'll get to it in just a second. So, let's talk about that. So, what I'm gonna what I'm gonna have here first is this is kind of the standard interpretation of how this verse has been interpreted for a long time. Uh, so, it says all other sins are outside the body, but sexual immorality is against their own body. Now. I say here to this point, Paul has been arguing against the Corinthians' invalid theological slogans. 
If one follows, follows the line of thinking, then the prohibition naturally follows flee from sexual immorality. Okay. But this prohibition is not Paul's final word. He offers one further theological reason to flee, closely related to what's been said. The body's for the Lord. Okay. Now he argues that sexual morality in particular is a sin against one's own body, which is for the Lord because it's also the temple of the Spirit. Then he says this, All other sins a person commits are outside the body in the sense that no other sin is directed specifically toward one's own body in the way that sexual immorality is, or at least that's how this has been interpreted. There's something special about sexual immorality that's different from other sins against the body. But are not other sins like drug abuse a sin against one's body? It would seem so. It would seem so. Probably the best answer, so here's what people, well, what are we going to do with this? The best answer is that sexual morality establishes a one flesh kind of relationship with, in this case, a prostitute, which is against the body in the sense that it's contrary to the natural God-given sexual function of the body in a marital relationship. So, okay, that's, that's kind of the answer. It's not fully satisfying, even to me, that, 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 the, that somehow this sin of sexual morality is against the body in a way that's really a lot different than drug abuse or something like that. So, uh, you know, this is all the translations interpret this as all other sins a person commits. Now, if you look at the King James Version here, it says every sin, it doesn't say every other sin, every sin that a man doeth is without the body, is outside the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Um, see, that didn't make a lot of sense either. <laughs> you know, every sin that a man commits is outside the body. But he that committeth fornication. So what happened is modern translations inserted a word that's not in the Greek, the word other. See that ESV, NIB, New American Standard? If you look at every translation, they insert... Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. You know, not every sin is, uh, but every other sin is outside the body except sexual morality, which is a special sin involved with the body, you know. So that's, that, that was, tr they were trying to give a kind of a, a little help for us and, and saying, well, when we say every sin is without the body, <laughs> no, every other sin is outside the body except sex and morality, that's against the body. So that's why I'm saying this is a real problem. There's something special about sexual immorality. But as I say, you have to add the word other there, uh, and you have to try to figure out, as I said, why is not drug abuse a sin against your own body? Now the Net Bible, I don't know if you've heard of the Net Bible or not, but it's a Bible on the internet. Net Bible. <laughs> it also stood, it had a dual meaning, New English Translation. And it was started a number of years ago because when the internet was getting going and so forth, uh, 
there was a question about, you know, copyright. That is, you know, you can't just, you can't just use a translation like the NIV or the New American Standard. You can't just use that in a published work without permission, sometimes paying money. You know, you got to pay money to use something like that. And the Internet comes along, and people want to write things and do things on the Internet, you know. And uh, so some guys got together at a meeting. It's a meeting of an evangelical theological society, which met just a couple weeks ago. But, and uh, they said, what are we going to do about this? And a person, a very wealthy person said, well, listen, I'll give you a million dollars to get the rights to the NIV so that you can use the NIV on the Internet. And these people who were at this table said, well, for that much money, we could produce our own translation and we could do our own. They did. They produced something called the Net Bible. And if you go on the Internet and put Net Bible in there, you'll see it. It's a different, they have different sites. But it's an interesting Bible in that they have these notes, these explanatory notes. And they have about 65,000 notes. So it's got more notes than any Bible ever created, you know. And they can be very helpful. They're, they're very, they're very, they can be very, very helpful, the Net Bible. So you might look into it. So what they have proposed is that this phrase, every sin a person commits is outside of the body, is a quotation from the Corinthians. Now, we've seen that um, already so far, because just in this, this chapter we saw... Uh, a quotation marks, you remember? The, the verses I just read in um, verse 12, 11, uh, verse 12, quote, I have the right to do anything, end of quote. Remember that? And then I have the right to do anything. So translators think they're, now see in the Greek text we can't tell anything like that. There's no quotation marks. The oldest manuscripts don't have any punctuation marks at all. In fact, if you look at a, a, a manuscript from the, very earliest centuries, there are no spaces between the letters. <laughs> there's just one letter's right or other, you have to figure out where the word division is. So there's no help in the, in the oldest manuscripts we have. So everything we have in our Bibles about punctuation marks is put in by translate. Now, you know, the, some of it seems obvious, and it's, but it's, it's all a question of interpretation. So in recent years, translators have put in uh, quotation marks in some places. Now we're going to see a very important one in chapter 7, verse 1. Very important one. But they did it in 612 here to help. That it makes a lot of sense. But this may be another one. And this would, this would make it an easier explanation of what Paul is saying. That is, the Corinthians are saying, every sin a person commits is outside of the body. That is, the Corinthians are saying, hey, these sins... Uh, are really outside the body. Uh, in other words, they're using that to justify immoral sex. That is, hey, these are just physical things. They don't affect me internally. I'm still a great Christian. You know, they don't bother me or anything like that. So they're arguing that sin occurs outside the body, um, that one can't sin in and through his body. So this, this explanation may, might be the right one here. At least it's, it makes a lot of sense in the sense of if that's what they're arguing, hey, listen, what I do with my body doesn't, doesn't affect me spiritually. 
But Paul says, but the immoral person sins against his own body. See, there's, there's the point. The immoral person, we're sinning against our own bodies. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, he's going to get to. So that may be the correct answer. This is a difficult passage. <laughs> you know, we know what Paul is saying. He's saying, don't go to the prostitutes. You don't have liberty to do that, but sometimes it's hard to figure out his exact reasoning here. But this, this translation makes a lot of sense. We may see it adopted in the future in other translations or as revisions come along. Verse 19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? See, there's the point where Paul is making. The, person, the immoral person sins against his own body. Uh, you, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your, with your bodies. So Paul now gives a theological justification for his prohibition against sexual morality in verse 18. He uses two images, the temple and the purchase of slaves. He had reasserts that the body in its present existence belongs to God. The body is the present habitation of God's Spirit, which means by implication that one belongs to the, to the God whose Spirit dwells within him. So this is in stark contrast to the Corinthians' view of the body, that what I do outside my body is, what I do with my body is not important, what, that the body is, they, they, they think of the body as, uh, destined for destruction and therefore has no eternal significance. That's the Greek idea, common Greek thinking. And all of that leads to this final imperative, therefore you must glorify, therefore you must honor God with your bodies. Which in this case um, means no sexual immorality. All right. Now we come to chapter 7, verse 1. Problems communicated by official letter. So these chapters 5 and 6, we said were maybe a problem is communicated by common rumor because Paul says it's commonly reported among you. Now he talks about a letter that they sent him. I say with the words, now for the matters you wrote about, that's chapter 7, verse 1, that we see on the next page here. Paul begins a new section of this letter by responding to a letter sent to him from the Corinthians. This is probably not a friendly exchange in which the new believers in Corinth are simply asking spiritual advice from the apostle. Hard to be sure, but sometimes it's presented as Okay, they're asking questions. Paul, hey, Paul, what about this? What about this? It seems a little more combative than that. Um, the letter, their letter was the response to Paul's previous letter mentioned in 5.9. Remember we talked about chapter 5, verse 9. Paul says, in my previous letter I said. So Paul had written a letter before 1 Corinthians, and then they wrote a letter in response to that in which they were probably taking exception to a number of Paul's instructions. In light of their own theology of the Spirit, with heavy emphasis on wisdom and knowledge, they probably see themselves as having arrived. We talked about that over-realized escape. That is, you know, Paul talks about you're already reigning and, you know, you, you've got, you know. They think of themselves as kind of spiritually mature. So their letter may have reflected more of a why can't we rather than why should we. 
possibly. That is, there may be a little more combative. Rather than just asking questions for advice, they may say, Paul, why can't we do this? So starting in part, chapter 7, Paul now takes up various items in their letter one by one. Most of them introduced by these words, now about. You've heard Pastor Ken mention this peri day, two Greek words, which means now about. And he says, you know, in 7.1, now for the matters you wrote about. So there it is. He doesn't say that again. He just says now about, now about, now about, now about. So he just kind of repeats the opening letter, uh, words there. So we know he's talking about that letter that they sent him. Well, okay, the first issue then is marriage and certain related matters to marriage. That's chapter 7. So let's just look at an overview here of what we're dealing with in this chapter. Verses 1 through 16 deal basically with those who have already been married or who have formerly been married but whose marriages have been dissolved. So 1 through 16, we're dealing with people who are already married or that is they're married now or they have been formerly married, but their marriages have been dissolved. Verses 25 through 38 deal with a special group who have yet to be married. Apparently, there has been some considerable pressure within a church to dissolve or abstain from marriage. Now, the problem is we don't have that letter. So we're reading between the lines of what Paul says here to try to figure out what exactly they're arguing. And I say, apparently, it seems apparent that there's some sort of pressure for certain reasons to either dissolve marriage, particularly like if you're married to an unbeliever, you should get a divorce, you know. Uh, and a lot of Christians think that. I mean, even Christians today. I mean, in the sense that a Christian will get saved, they're married to this ungodly, unsaved person, they think, man, i got to get rid of this person. You know, it's a natural, I mean, I think, sort of reaction maybe. So there's that idea. Um, or to abstain from marriage. I guess I should say abstain from uh, sexual activity in marriage. I should have it there, but as we'll see. Um, We'll see that. Paul's response to both, which is found in the central section, is stay as you are. The Corinthian position on these things is found in 1b. So uh, if I'm looking over to chapter 7, verse 1 here, I'm looking at the next page. Paul says, now for the matters you wrote about, quote, there's those quotation marks again. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, um, so that's a Corinthian quotation, a Corinthian quotation. Now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's, that's a Corinthian quotation. Um, so that's the, that's the Corinthian position. Um, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Thus, the Corinthians were arguing for celibacy in marriage, and if that was not workable, then divorce from unbelieving partners. This also means 
remaining single if you are a virgin or a widow or widower. Thus the Corinthians were advocating celibacy as a rule or norm and considered sex to be a sin. Now, I said they considered sex to be a sin. 7.28 will say, But if you marry, you've not sinned, see? And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. 7.36, If anyone is worried that he might be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should not do as he wants. He's not sinning. So uh, it's not a sin. Uh, what would seem to lie behind this, uh, what would seem to lie behind this position is difficult to tell. Now that's where the real problem comes. Why would somebody be advocating this idea? As we noted in the last chapter, it was a view of at least some in the Roman world that sexual relationships and marriage were primarily for procreation and that husbands should find, should, uh, should fulfill, I should say, their sexual desires uh, with prostitutes or others. One commentator says, they may have been influenced by philosophical discussions, medical debates, local religious cults, theological assumptions, enthusiasm for higher spiritual experiences, practical exigencies, or a combination of all these ideas. Others suggest the Corinthians who thought of themselves as especially spiritual may have viewed themselves as above the earthly existence, having already arrived, and institutions like marriage that will pass away in the age to come. It's, it's just hard to know what was behind this, this clear attitude we see expressed here. All right, so now... Let's look at this behavior within marriage, 7, 1 through 16. The first section is basically a response to those who have argued for cessation of sexual relations within marriage on the base of their, basis of their slogan, quote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So on the basis of this, of this slogan that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations, they were arguing, as I said, for abstinence within marriage. And we'll see that shortly here. And since abstinence might be difficult for some, then divorce seems to have been recommended as a viable alternative. And definitely when one's marriage partner is an unbeliever. Let's look at that. Paul says, no, marital celibacy is not to be practiced. 7, 1 through 2. Now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The words, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, are another quotation from the Corinthians. Their position might have gone something like, since you are, Paul, are unmarried and are, actively seek, and are not actively seeking marriage, and since you have commanded us in your previous letter to abstain from sexual immorality, is it not so that one is better off not to have sexual intercourse at all. After all, in the new age that we have already entered in by the Spirit, there is neither marrying nor giving in marriage. Why should we not be as the angels now? Besides, since the body counts for nothing, if some wish to fulfill physical desires, there's always the prostitutes. Now, this is one commentator's trying to reconstruct, trying to reconstruct this. It's hard to know why they would have said it's good for a man 
not to have sexual relations with a woman. Um, I don't know if I should mention this or not. I didn't mention it in my notes, but sometimes I think I should mention this. I don't know if it just if I just complicate things unnecessarily sometimes. Uh, don't answer yes to that, please. Uh, uh, <laughs> but I don't know if you are familiar with, um, let's see here, the uh, King James, no, that's not it, the King James Version on this particular verse. Um, So I guess I'll tell you what it says anyway. Um, in the King James it says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now for the things you wrote about, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Well, if you read the King James, that sounds like Paul is saying, there's no quotation marks here. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And uh, so that's, that's interesting <laughs> that Paul would say, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. <clears throat> now, that phrase, not to touch a woman, uh, means in Greek, and there is no question, there's no, absolutely no question that this is what it means. It means what the NIV says. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, I guess you can get that from touch a woman. You know, it's good for a man. They don't mean touch a woman like that. They mean it's good for a man not to have sex. That's what that phrase means, you know, in Greek. Um, and um, let's see, why do, why do I have a problem there with just switching translations there? Um, the, the uh, I don't have it here, but the NIV 1984, the NIV 1984 translated this verse. Now for the matters you wrote about, no quotation marks, it's good for a man not to marry. It's good for a man. So it's a real problem. They, they, everybody knows, can Paul really be saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Okay, some in the church interpret it that way. Yeah, the priesthood is better. It's better to be celibate. That's a higher state, you know, the Roman Catholic Church. Celibacy is a higher state. It's good not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's a higher state. So yeah, there's people down through church history who took it that way because they knew what that says. It's good. They knew that that phrase meant it's good not to have sexual relations with a woman. But, but, but the problem is, you know, it, it's a real problem because Paul says in verse 3, right, if it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, he says... The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife. 
The wife doesn't have, a, wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the yields to the husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields to his own wife. So Paul's in a contradiction here. If this verse 1 says, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, why, Paul, do you say the husband should have sexual relations with his wife? That is, he must, you know, he, he has a responsibility to. The wife doesn't have authority, you know. He says that, you know, very clearly. Uh, don't deprive of each other, except by mutual consent, and so forth. So, on the one hand, Paul says uh, that sexual relationships are a duty within marriage. In verse 3, but then in verse 1 is he saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. You can't, you can't make those agree. They can't, they can't fit together. You can't say in verse 1 it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And then in verse 3 say, yeah, in marriage uh, you must fulfill this duty of having sexual relations. So, so there's got to be a problem. So what did the church, what did people do? They took verse 1 to say it's good for a man not to marry. But if you are married, then you have this duty of sexual relations. So it's good for a man not to marry. Now, verse 1 didn't mean that. It couldn't mean that. But you're, you're trying to make sense of this thing. How, what in the world is Paul saying? He's saying he can't say it's good to have sexual relations. It's, it, it's, it's, you, you, it's, good, it's good not to have sexual relations. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations. And then in verse 3, command sexual relations. Okay, there's got to be... So therefore, verse 1 must mean, okay, it's good for a man not to marry, but if you're married, then you have the duty to have sexual relations. And where is it um, in the Bible, in my own version of it, um, where it says, um, but if you do marry, it's good, you know, if, to uh, keep yourself um, in control. But if you can stay under, we'll get to it. Good. We'll get to it. Okay. We'll, we'll get to it. We'll get there. But I, I don't know if I went too far down this rabbit trail. But how do you solve this dilemma? Well, the answer is those quotation marks again. Those quotation marks. Because our text says, now for the matters you wrote about, the Corinthians are saying, quote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But Paul says, absolutely not. That's not true. Because in marriage, you have a duty to do it, see? So the quotations solve the problem here that, that we're talking about. Okay, so maybe I shouldn't have taken you down that rabbit trail. The, the NIV solves the problem here that, the, that, we've, that, that it's been a problem uh, in understanding what this verse is about. So verse 1 says, um, they're saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations. Verse 2, Paul says, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The but for with which this sentence begins indicates that Paul is now giving his position in contrast to the Corinthians in verse 1. Paul rejects the Corinthians' advocacy of marital celibacy that is, no sex within marriage. Instead, married couples should continue in the full sexual relations with their own partners. Married couples, because of the danger of sexual morality, should continue in full sexual relations. However, Paul makes it clear that these sexual relationships are only to be with one's own husband 
our wife. So Paul is saying no to their slogan, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman as far as married partners are concerned. So Paul means, you know, let each man who is already married continue in sexual relations with his own wife and each wife likewise. And that means a full conjugal life, which is what verses 3 through 5 are going to explain. So Paul's discussion reflects the uniform biblical stance on sex. Fundamentally, in the Bible, there are only two types of sex. There's two types of sex in the Bible. Sex within marriage and sexual immorality. That's all there is and there ain't no more. There's sex within marriage and there's sexual morality. And now I have to add sex with homosexual. It has to be sexual, heterosexual marriage. <laughs> I should add that. It's only heterosexual marriage we're talking about here. Of course, that's the only kind Paul <laughs> knew about. Nobody in the ancient world ever thought about anything but heterosexual marriage. All right, marital celibacy, marital marriage involves uh, physical obligations binding on both husband and wife. Marriage involves physical obligations, uh, obligations binding on both husband and wife. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to the wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. So I say now, Paul elaborates on verse 2 concerning mutual sexual relations. These verses emphasize that sexual relationships are a duty within marriage, verse 3, because the body is not one's free possession but belongs to one's spouse. The language implies that married couples are indebted to one another sexually. Sex is not something the husband does to the wife, so the husband's body belongs to the wife in the same way hers does to him. I say the viewpoint expressed here is probably to be traced back to the instructions concerning a slave wife in Exodus 21, 7 through 11. I say probably. Paul's familiar, you know, would know the Old Testament intimately. It says, if a man sells his daughter as a servant and the master selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these things, she is to go free without any payment of money. This passage says that even a slave wife had the right to expect love from her husband. Jewish interpreters probably rightly deduce from this that the, these same rights were due to a free wife. So there's certain obligations a husband owes to his wife. In verse 4, Paul explains why sexual relations are a due within marriage. This is a revolutionary thinking, contrary to the culture of the ancient world, where the husband had authority over all members of his household. He was the paterfamilias, the father of the family, the head guy, the grand pooba, you know. Um, <laughs> so, 
So, uh, so uh, somebody sent this, uh, Larry sent me this, sent this thing that said, uh, somebody, I forgot who it was, somebody was arguing they wanted to be called the elder pro tem, you know. And uh, I, I sent Ken and I said, can I have that title, elder pro tem, you know. He said, well, you got to give up your title of grand pooba then if you... <laughs> if, you, if you want this. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's the way it was in the ancient world, though. You know, the father had tremendous power, even the power to kill his children in many cases. Uh, Paul says that in marriage, a person gives oneself to one's spouse and therefore, in a sense, comes under the authority of that one. So the emphasis, is not, emphasis here is not possessing the body of another. Rather, in marriage, one just doesn't have authority over their own body to do with what they please. So one can't deprive the other, as he says, he's going to say in verse 5 here. So Paul puts sexual relationships in Christian marriages on a much higher ground than one finds in most cultures where sex is often viewed as the husband's privilege and the wife's, wife's obligation. He sees this as a mutual thing. Verse 5, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. So you may, not, you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Paul now explicitly prohibits the Corinthians' viewpoint expressed in verse 1, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The verb translated deprive means to cause another to suffer loss by taking away through illicit means. And it's translated rob, steal, despoil, defraud. It's the same verb used in Exodus 21.10 discussed previously to prohibit the denial of sexual rights to the slave wife. In our culture, cheating refers to extramarital affairs. But for Paul, cheating means depriving one's spouse of the sexual relations that are due them. So in verses 5 through 6, I say Paul prohibits sexual abstinence within marriage since this can lead to extramarital sexual activity when one of the partners is tempted to commit immorality under the influence of Satan. However, Paul makes a hypothetical concession. Notice the language, except perhaps to the Corinthian position of abstinence in special circumstances when it is by mutual consent but only on a temporary basis. Um, so he says, okay, you're arguing for sexual abstinence within marriage. No, but there could be a case for that when it's by mutual consent for a season. Um, the, abstinence, the, the example of abstinence in prayer is probably given as example. There can be cases where there wouldn't be sexual activity. Uh, one of those examples might be the illness of a partner. Um, or maybe in our day and age, the absence of a partner. You know, Somebody's in the Navy, they go on a six-month cruise, something like that. So there are exceptions to this. It's not all, you know, there's no exceptions here. I say Paul is quick to add in verse 6 that what he said about temporary sexual, sexual abstinence within marriage is a concession, not a command. Paul means that sometimes there may be sexual abstinence in marriage. He will concede that. 
but it's not a command as they're saying and not the norm since that would lead to sexual immorality. Verse 7, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. I say it's often said that Paul here is referring to his own gift of celibacy, the gift of celibacy. Merriam-Webster defines celibacy as one, the state of not being married, or two, abstention from sexual intercourse, 2A, 2B, abstention by a vow from marriage. But these definitions do not accurately describe the gift Paul is referencing, which is self-control. Verse 5, that you come together that Satan will not tempt you because your lack of self-control. But each of you has their own gift. You know, I wish you were like I am. But not everybody has this gift of self-control, as he says in verse 9. But if they cannot control themselves... So what I'm saying here is celibacy, the the English term celibacy doesn't really describe accurately what Paul is talking about here when he says, uh, I wish you were as I am that you, you know, had this gift of celibacy. I guess we know what that means, I guess. But I want to make sure you understand it's the gift of self-control. This is the gift of freedom from the desire or need for sexual fulfillment that made it possible for Paul to live without marriage. All those who are not married must, according to Scripture, remain celibate in the sense of abstaining from sexual intercourse, whether or not they have what we might call the true gift of celibacy, freedom from the desire or need for sexual fulfillment. So Paul says, you know, it'd be nice if you had the gift I had, which is freedom from sexual desires, but most people don't have that gift. 99% of the population doesn't have that kind of gift. Uh, I say here, this is one of my hobby horses, I'm sorry about this, but there is no gift of singleness in this passage. Now you'll hear that a lot, and there's a whole books written about it. it. Drives me crazy, but what can I do? Uh, that there is some sort of gift of singleness uh, that's not true. There's a gift of self-control. There's a gift of self-control. Now, you can have that gift of self-control and still be married. <laughs> you know, you, don't, you, you, can, you can have that self-control and still get married, but it just means you have this self-control, so it would be easier for you not to be married. But there is no gift that, you know, God wants you to be single. Now, it's true that in God's good providence, many people are single. You know, that's just the way it works out. And God's providence, the way God works, some people just never find a mate. They never get married. That's the way it is. But it's not some spiritual gift, you know. Um, you know, if, you, if you're single and you want to be married, it's a trial. It's not a gift. <laughs> so there's no gift of singleness in that sense. There's a gift of 
self-control. That's the gift Paul's talking about here. Um, so I say there's no gift per se of singleness, though it's much easier to remain so if one has Paul's gift. Nevertheless, single people must remain celibate because whether they have the gift or not. I say thus Paul is able to agree with the one instance with the Corinthians position that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's not true for the married, but it is true for those who have the gift to be completely free from any need of sexual fulfillment. So Paul's gift here concerns the capacity to, for him to concentrate on the work of the gospel without being distracted by sexual desires. As such, it's not a higher spiritual status. You know, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that celibacy is a higher spiritual status. It's not a higher spiritual status. It's not a greater spiritual commitment as the Roman Catholic Church. It's a gift of God. That's all he's talking about here. Uh, um, and it, it's important, I guess, to note that, you know, while uh, what, we, what Paul says is true of him now may have not always been true. I, I don't know. We, we have a debate about whether Paul was ever married or not. You know, was Paul ever married and his wife died? Some people argue that it's likely Paul was married because he was kind of a Jewish rabbi and those people, Jews, Jews tend, uh, I mean, Jews have, in their culture, have always emphasized marriage. You, I mean, they'll, they'll find you a wife. <laughs> and that's true in all cultures in the ancient world. I mean, I mean they arranged marriages. You know, there wasn't any, there wasn't such, there wasn't any gift of singleness running around in the ancient world. It was, your parents were going to arrange you a marriage, you know, and that's the way it worked. So, uh, it, I don't know. I don't know whether Paul was married or not. Um, but the point is, most Christians don't have this gift. Um, let's talk about widower, widowers and widows. He says they must remain celibate or marry. They've got to remain, you know, without uh, having sex or they have to marry. How do the unmarried... Now to the unmarried and widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. <clears throat> the meaning of the word unmarried in English naturally includes those who have never been married. But this Greek word, which is only used in this chapter in the New Testament, does not refer to those who have never been married, but to those who were once married but are now single what some have called the demarried. It's also a word that was used for a widower, which is probably the case here in verse 8. So this is probably the word uh, in Greek that probably refers to a widower. He's probably talking about to the widowers, the men who are no longer married, their wives have passed, and the widows, their husbands have passed. Uh, going all the details there. But anyway, I think that's more likely. Thus, iron men and widows are those whose marriages have been dissolved through death, widowers and widows. Paul advises that it's good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. If this understanding is correct, it might be an indication that Paul was once married but is now a widower. Um, 
so uh, that was where that unmarried was used, uh, that I pointed that out. So here is the uh, specific prince, uh, the, the first mention in the argument of the principle, remain as you are, that Paul will articulate in verses 17 through 24. Um, so Paul will say, like in 726, because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Uh, you'll talk about 1 Timothy 5, 14. I counsel young women to marry. Uh, verse 7, 13, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone he wishes. So what's going on here? Uh, I think it's better to remain as you are. Um, I say Paul gives no reason for this advice, but we can probably assume it's the same as in 25 through 35, the present crisis. So Paul is going to give some advice here about, you know, people who are looking to marry. And he'll say, you know, um, if because of the present Christ, I think it's good for a man to, to remain as he is, unmarried. Now, again, the Catholic Church kind of universalizes that and say the unmarried state is the best state. But this, this advice that Paul gives here is to a particular Corinthian situation. You can't, you can't universalize this advice. If you're thinking about getting married, don't get married. Well, the, the population is going to be gone in a few years. <laughs> if we don't have any marriages, you know, if, if this is the advice, this is totally contrary to Genesis chapter, you know, the book of Genesis, but the point is some people try to say, okay, the unmarried state is better, be better if all people didn't marry. That just can't be true. Now, notice he says it's because of the present crisis. Um, so there's something going on here that we'll, we'll talk about here, uh, some sort of crisis, some sort of difficulty. Some people talk about a famine. We'll, we'll look at some things here I've mentioned here. But Paul will kind of, throughout this chapter, he'll say, you know, for the present situation, I think it's better just to remain as you are. Remain in the case as you are. Uh, so for the widows and widowers, probably for the present time, the situation in Corinth, whatever it is, uh, as I mentioned the famine thing, I'll talk about that, but it's probably good to just remain as you are for the present time. Um, so um, so it's, if, if you can control your passions for the present time, it's better for you not to marry. See, that's, this is contrary to 1 Timothy 5.14. I counsel the younger widows to marry. Well, he says here, the widows should stay unmarried. Well, which one is it, Paul? <laughs> you see my point? Uh, the point here is this is the present crisis. There's something going on in Corinth right now that he's going to say, I think for the present time, it's better that you not marry. Just stay as you are for the present time. But his advice generally he tells Timothy, I counsel younger widows to marry. They should, they should get married. Um, 
you know, that that's, that's, would seem contradictory to this, but the answer is, as we'll see, he tells everybody to sort of just remain as you are because of the present crisis. Verse 9, but if they cannot control passions, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul recognized that all people have the gift of self-control, and therefore they may fall into sexual immorality. <clears throat> the Greek text suggests a translation closer to the NRSV, but if they are not practicing self-control, that is, if they don't have power over their passions, the antidote for such sin is to get married. Finally, Paul gives the reason for they should get married. It's better to marry or to be married than to burn with passion. Paul's point is those who are contemplating are committing sexual sin should marry rather than be consumed by the passions of their sin. So marriage is a proper alternative for those who are already consumed by sexual desire and are sinning. Uh, Paul is not saying that every couple that contemplates sexual sin or every couple that's engaging sexual sin should get married. He's not saying that. Um, but the widows and the, the widowers and the widows, if they can't follow Paul's example here, they should, if possible, look forward, look to get married rather than commit sexual sin. Um, so that's true. You know, if we have somebody who comes to our church. <clears throat> Unbelievers, they're involved in an immoral sexual relation. We don't say you better get married, you know, right away. You know, that's not that's not the necessarily the solution <laughs> to their problem. They should stop having immoral sexual relations. That's the solution to their problem. Now, it's fine if they they want to get married. That's fine. Uh, some some people, amazing today, uh, you know, people who are very committed to each other just never get married. They just it's they just put it off and put it off and put it off. So. There's nothing wrong with, with getting married, but it's not the solution, the automatic solution to people who are engaged in illicit sexual activity. That's not Paul's point. Well, verse uh, 10, Paul says, Divorce is not permissible for believers without biblical grounds. Divorce is not permissible for believers without biblical grounds. In this chapter, Paul addresses both men and women. But Paul addresses the women first, which may suggest that the problem is primarily concerned with some women in the church who were using the slogan, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, to reject sexual relations with their husbands, and arguing for divorce if it came to that. For Paul, this is an unbiblical ground for divorce. Now, that's a reconstruction of what's happening. We know what Paul says here. It's not permissible believers to, to, uh, for believers to divorce without biblical grounds, that's, that's clear. But what I just said there is I'm trying to reconstruct you know, how this came about. Why would they be arguing to get divorced? Well, maybe for these reasons we talked about. Verse 10, to the, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband. The married in verses 10 and 11 are believers. Verse 11 says, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. So the married in verses 10 and 11 are unbelievers. In verses 12 through 16, Paul will address mixed marriages. He says, to the rest I say, 
if a brother has a wife who is not a believer. So verse 12, you get to mixed marriages. So right now we're dealing with two Christians who are married. Um, Paul remembers that uh, Jesus himself spoke to the question, so he appeals to his authority. It is not I from whom this command comes, but the Lord. For many other issues that arose in the Gentile churches, Paul speaks on his own authority, which of course derives from the Lord. He's an apostle, precisely because Jesus did not address such questions. For instance, Jesus never uh, discussed mixed marriages. He didn't, he, there weren't any mixed marriages in the Jewish community that Jesus ran across. There were Jews married to Jews, you know, Jew, you know, people who were professing Jews to other professing Jews. Or, you know, they were Jews, but they, they all had the same religion. So Paul will have to deal with a question that didn't come up with Jesus, mixed marriages, you know. But right now, the Lord dealt with this question of two believers who are married, professing believers, like in Judaism. Uh, however, in the present situation, on which Paul probably had not previously given instruction, there is teaching from Jesus, so he appeals to that. In verses 12 through 16, on the other hand, where the issue lies outside the province of Jesus' own teaching, it is Paul who speaks, not the Lord. Paul addresses the wise first. A wife must not separate from her husband. Now the term separate and divorce are used interchangeably in this passage. Now this is the thing that throws every, a lot of people off because they assume, because there is a word for separate, korizo, and the word for divorce, me, they think he's talking about two different things, separate and divorce. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> They're used synonymously in this passage and throughout Greek literature. There was absolutely no concept of legal separation in the world. So to us, we have to, we say that these, this couple is separated. That's different from their divorced. You know, that's different. Well, there's no such thing like that in the ancient world, in the Roman world. The verb translated separate in verse 10 is also used in verse 11. But if she does separate, and twice in verse 15 translated leave, but if the unbeliever leaves, separates, let it be so. Let her let them have, let them leave, separate. The point is to note that in this separation, in verse 11, produces an unmarried state. But if she does not separate, she must remain unmarried. See? If she doesn't separate, if she, she must, if she does separate, she must remain unmarried. So the separation creates an unmarried state. It's divorce. That's hard for people to see when they just read this in English, but that's the case. The, the verb unseparate, the verb divorce are synonyms in the ancient world. Um, the Greek term separate was a technical term for divorce in Paul's day. Divorce in the Greco-Roman culture could be legalized by means of documents, but more often it simply happened. In the culture, divorce was divorce, whether established by a document or not. Either the man sent his wife away, that is, he divorced her, or else either of them left the other. Normally only a man in the ancient world could divorce his wife. There was time later on in Roman history where wives could divorce, but normally in the ancient world, men divorced their wives. Women didn't have any right. They, they separated. They left the marriage. Ordinarily, when the wife divorces, she simply leaves her husband. The same verb is used in 15 of a pagan partner of either sex who leaves. And as I noted, occurs regularly in contemporary documents for mutual divorce. 
agreeing to separate from each other. On the other hand, a man ordinarily divorced his wife, sent her away. Nonetheless, in verse 13, the wife can do the same. She must not divorce him. So verse, we're talking about separation and divorce. They're just synonymous concepts, and we have to kind of remember that as we read this passage because it, it's very confusing because in English, separation is different in our culture from divorce. All right, we better stop there. Gone over here. Thank you so much, and we will stop here for tonight. So this is our 10th time. We got two more, right? Yep, two more. Keep coming until you say no more. <laughs> okay, no more. <laughs>